I've been um, thinking about maybe like three different topics to um, possibly share this morning. And I'm, I'm going to settle on one that I think we won't be covering either tomorrow with boundaries or in the retreat with um, really embracing the whole of the Buddhist teachings, because that one is going to definitely be uh, about that, the gradual path. And we really include in that everything uh, that the Buddha offered because he only offered those things that really help support us to awaken. And so when all of that fits in, it's kind of the message that we ought to at least understand what those different practices are and approaches and uh, knowledge so that we can use the things that we need when we need them. But as I said, I think I'll hold off on that talk until the opening of the retreat. And we're planning to record all of the sessions of the retreat. So anyone who isn't there in person, you'll be able to catch it on Dharma Seed. And so that should also be true of the retreat we just taught for the most part in Barry. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I think I'm going to talk about truth this morning. It's, it's such a foundational issue or um, thing to be attentive to. And I'm realizing that I think a dedication to truth is sometimes what can help us navigate difficult situations. There was a high school student talking to me about something that happened at school. And they um, they were really interested in how to navigate this, this situation that came up. It was in the drama department at their high school. And uh, the students... There, it's, there's a very, it's a very vibrant program, and the students here are coming to the end of the year, looking forward to hearing. So, what are the plays that we're going to put on next year? And the announcement was that one of them would be Miss Saigon. And if you don't know anything about the the storyline or the the uh, the topic of the play, it's set in the Vietnam war era in Vietnam, and it's um, a story about a young woman who um, has a relationship with a U.S. soldier, and she uh, gets pregnant, and he ultimately just leaves her, and she has to fend for herself, and of course, there's a lot to that. Anyway, the students had a very strong negative reaction about putting this play on. And some of them became quite righteously indignant. And as the student was telling me the story, they they were feeling like they agreed with what the students were were thinking and feeling, but they didn't agree with their approach to how they handled it. And basically the students, this is a high school with a pretty large Asian population. And they felt like they were um, not wanting to put on a play that had so much, um, what do I want to say, challenge around Um, morals and ethics and class and race and all kinds of issues. And they also really felt that it was insensitive for the drama teacher who wasn't Vietnamese to kind of put this forward. And the, the students got a petition together. They went over the drama teacher's head and went right to the principal. And they, um, one student really started yelling at this drama teacher. And the one who was telling me about it was, was really, you know, feeling like so much, um, 
hard feelings were created for no good reason, why not just talk about the issues? So it's an example. It's a, you know, maybe we think, oh, that's a small example. But in our own lives, day by day, I think a lot of times we have this tendency to jump to conclusions, decide what's right without really understanding everyone's views or the other ways of seeing things, not really talking about it and discussing it, but instead settling on what we think is right. And then, and then you can kind of hear how as a group, there's this possibility always of taking it further than you would if you were doing it yourself. The student who was telling me about it decided not to sign the petition, even though their friends did. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of like, do we stand up for ourselves on our own? Do we want to go the extra mile and try to understand what the other side is thinking? Do we really um, have enough dedication to truth to hold our own views and opinions lightly? Are we ready to put them down and not take them to be sort of a part of our own character? I think this is sometimes what happens. We identify with what we've decided is the right thing. And we're not really very open to hearing what other um, facts might come into play or other people's experience. What is someone else's experience around this? How does it affect them? So I was thinking about this beautiful sutta that I mention every once in a while um, called With Chunky, sutta number 95. According to our records, I, we haven't really taught this sutta in a couple of years, so I thought, Maybe this is an opportunity to have a conversation around the part where the Buddha talks about what it means to preserve truth and what it means to discover truth and what it means to finally arrive at truth. And especially as we think about how do we, how do we interact with others and do we you know, feel like, well, I have the truth, I know the truth, my view is true and the views of others is, you know, not. And this is exactly what the Buddha says. So the part of the sutta, there's, there's a long um, coming kind of like unfolding into the situation where this, this uh, interaction that the Buddha has starts, but it begins with um, this large group of, of Brahmins, so so this is the the sort of you might say priestly caste, and they're uh, some pretty um, highly respected people in this group. And they come, and this student wants to engage with the Buddha and asks the Buddha a question when he has the opportunity. So I took some. I just copied some of this is off the Sutta Central. Just want to read a little bit of it to you. When he asks, when this young man asks the question, he says, Master Gotama, regarding that which by the lineage of testament and by canonical authority is the ancient hymnal of the Brahmins, the Brahmins come to the definite conclusion this is the only truth. Other ideas, um, Bhante Sujata's translation here is other ideas are silly. <laughs> But I actually like the Kubodis better as anything else is wrong. So a lot of times we find ourselves thinking that way. This is true and everything else is wrong or anything else is wrong. So he asks uh, the Buddha, what do you say about this? And then the Buddha starts to ask him if any of the, the Brahmins who say this also say, I know this, I see this, this is the only truth, and everything else is wrong. And the students said they don't. They don't say, I know this and see this directly. 
myself, that this, they've heard it from someone else. So this is another thing where we get, can get caught up in having a rigid perspective. We just take what other people say as true. And this really happens a lot when we hear people talking, oh, the sutta number, yes, it's number 95 in the Majjhima Nikaya. Thank you. And there, this often, often happens when people tell us something about someone else. Um, we, we have a difficult time holding that news as um, possibly not true. Um, not settling on it. And I've noticed this for myself in my own mind. I have to make a definite effort to hold those um, statements I hear about people lightly and not um, think of them as absolute or definitely true. And it doesn't matter who is saying it. It could be someone you really trust, a trusted authority. The Buddha, and you've heard me say this a lot of times, but it's so important, I think, to see again and again and again through the suttas. Someone will come to the Buddha and say that someone is doing such and such a thing, or there's, they have such and such a belief. And the Buddha never assumes that that is correct. He always calls the person to them or talks to them directly and asks them if it's true. And so it's, it's very important that we do the same thing. If someone tells us how, um, how someone else thinks or feels or what they are saying or doing, you know, if, if in fact it's someone we can talk to, it's good to get their, uh, their own experience. But this idea that, you know, we can know or see something for ourselves. So this, um, this tradition has been passed down through generations that this young man is talking about. This is what people are, are following. And yet the teachers haven't really verified this for themselves through direct experience. And so the, um, the Buddha pursues this and he says, so the Brahmins don't say this. Do their teachers say this? And he says, no, they don't claim to know and see this for themselves. And then finally, the Buddha says, well, what about the ancient seers who, who um, composed these, these sayings, these hymns? Did they know or, and see and say this is true and everything else is false? or wrong. And the student says, no. So the Buddha uses this simile. He says, well, then it seems there's not a single one of them, not even anyone back to the seventh generation of teachers, nor even the ancient seers of the Brahmins who say, we know this, we see this, this is the only truth, everything else is wrong. And then he says, this, so suppose there's a file of or a queue of blind men each holding the one in front. The first one doesn't see, the middle one doesn't see, the last one doesn't see. In the same way, it seems to me that the Brahman statement turns out to be like this queue of blind men. The first one doesn't see, the middle one doesn't see, and the last one doesn't see. So we have to be careful we don't get in that queue. <laughs> and we do a lot of times without being very aware of of things. And a lot of times I think it comes because we may hear the same thing over and over. And the more we hear it, the more we believe it. So looking to how can we verify things for ourselves? And sometimes it's really not possible. There's so much going on in the world that we hear about because we have all this access to, um, media that flashes around the world in a nanosecond that we we can't really know for ourselves and then it's still important to hold that you know small amount of uncertainty around it 
So the way this continues is that the Buddha, uh, the, the young man then says, well, we don't just honor this because of faith. We honor, we honor it because of oral transmission. And the next thing the Buddha says, I think is really important. He says, there are the, these five things that can turn out in one of two ways, faith, preference, oral tradition, reasoned contemplation, and acceptance of a view after consideration. So he says, you can have something that you have total faith in, and yet it might be completely wrong. Or you might not have any faith in something, and it turns out to be true. And the same with these other things. And we can hear about it, we can accept it, and yet it may turn out to be wrong. Or we can say, yeah, I don't believe in that, but, or I don't agree with that, but it might turn out to be the truth. So you ask, like, well, what am I supposed to ground myself in? Is it only what I can know for myself? And maybe the way we think is the only thing we can know for ourselves is what we see or hear, taste, touch, smell, think. Because that's what, the way we get our information is through these senses. And actually the, the challenge can be to recognize that through deep practice of meditation and all of the other components of the path, there is a knowing and seeing that happens directly through that process of going beyond the thinking mind. Now, at first we have to have faith that that can happen but again, behold that, that bit of um, uncertainty. And it's, it's, really, um, it's really beneficial, I think, that we have some teachers who have said, you know, even when you think something is absolutely true, just hold that percentage of uncertainty around it in case things like, you know, is this person enlightened or not? Um, hold a little bit of question there. But the Buddha says, when you don't, if you have faith in something, if you just say, this is what I, th I, this is what I believe based on my faith, that preserves the truth. If you say, this is what I believe based on my, you know, like reflective acceptance of it or the fact that I've pondered this and I've really investigated. If we say that, then we're not overstepping, we're not going further than what we actually can honestly verify. The way I think this works with, with regard to our interactions with people, like what if we had this understanding or we took this basic um, principle seriously that says I don't really know when someone else is you know upset with me and I want to say but I but what I did wasn't wrong I did this or I this is my or you know you're wrong with your view instead of jumping to that conclusion what if I really stay in sort of um, committed to wanting to hear the truth, to know the truth, to expand my view. Can I really listen to that other person? Can I do it from that place of, I want to see the fuller picture of what's happening here between us and around us and in this context. And, and I feel like there's so much that can develop out of this willingness to hold off on coming to a full conclusion until we feel like we've heard as much as we can about all sides. If we took up that practice, maybe we wouldn't be so reactive. And that's really the, the, the thing I'm thinking about. We, we talked during the retreat a number of times about slipping a wedge of awareness between whatever we're hearing or feeling, that trigger, and what we, what we do in return and response. And that wedge of awareness could be really supported by a dedication to truth. 
Do I know what's really the situation all around how we feel, how others are experiencing this? You know, I'm, I'm sure that drama teacher had no idea that his Asian students were going to have such a, a strong reaction. Um, the student that told me about it said that they were surprised that the students even got the Vietnamese teachers on staff to sign the petition. And it's like, you know, what is it? Can, can this experience bring a broader understanding of how people feel about, you know, their own life situation, their own tradition, what it is that, you know, others, others experience when, you know, these, these kinds of things are used as a source of, you know, entertainment or um, discussion. It's, it's such a rich opportunity to investigate what really is at the root of our, our deep feelings and reactions. So the Buddha, of course, gives this young man um, a, a very beautiful teaching here because he talks about, okay, this is how you um, preserve the truth. But this is not yet the arrival at truth. So when we say, you know, this is, this is what I hold to be correct because of faith, it's admitting, you know, I haven't really arrived at the truth yet. And so, of course, this young man asks, how do you define the arrival of truth? And he said, and the Buddha says, by the cultivation developed, oh, no, so wait, not arrival of truth, the discovery of truth. Let's back up. He says that this is... Um, this preservation of truth is not yet here. Um, Bhante Sujato calls it the awakening of truth. In uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's version, he calls it the discovery of truth. And he says, the student says, well, what is this um, awakening to truth? It's kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. How do I awaken to truth or discover the truth? And then the Buddha talks about finding a good teacher, this mendicant who you really, really watch and scrutinize and listen to, and you know you really um, look at whether there's anything that they would do out of greed or hatred or delusion to lead someone the wrong way. Is there a message slanted because of their own? defilements. And when you realize that's not the case, then you start to really listen to them, their teaching. You take it in, you practice it, and you really reflect upon it. You listen to it. And when they, when you, you know, accept this, um, reflecting on the meaning, accepting those things after consideration. Of course, if you talked about it at that point, you'd still be saying, I'm doing this based on my reflective acceptance. But the enthusiasm starts to arise and you make an effort and you persevere and you practice for yourself to see it directly. And so this is, this is how we awaken to the truth and the Buddha says you have to really go even further to finally arrive at the truth. So using the same methods, you keep going until you really are clear that you know for sure yourself. So I think I'm going to stop, pause there, stop there. I'd like to know if this is striking any chord with any of you and see that what might be useful in this for you or maybe some of the um, avenues that lead from this teaching to some of the things that are bringing stress into your life.
Any comments? Questions? Yes, Neil? Um, yeah, a lot of things brings up a lot of things. Um, it, it seems to me that with regard to the Buddhist teachings, I think one could say there is a definitive truth. Um, whether I know what that is, I'm not sure yet, but with regard to sort of mundane life, I, I, I'm never really sure that there is just one truth. It feels to me that the truth is, I don't know, is it nebulous? It's, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm thinking about a lot of different types of situations, you know, like political opinions, um, cultural issues. I mean, all those kind of things, there seem to be so many sides to things. I mean, you know, uh, many of us want to believe that, you know, certain politicians are just bad and corrupt and they're out, you know, they're, they, they only want to do harm, but can that really be true? Um, you know, whereas other people would say, you know, no, they're, they're looking out for the public welfare, um, but is that totally true? You know, I, so I'm not really sure what my question or my comment is, but I just, I guess what I'm wondering is, is there really truth? Isn't everything kind of black and uh, not black and white? Isn't everything kind of gray? Yes, I think. I appreciate your comments. I think that it's um, helping push into the area I'm interested in here, which is, I agree with you that I look at the Dhamma, the, you know, the Dhamma, the way things actually are, and I see the truth of it. You know, the thing, there are so many things that we can verify through our experience that we know the Buddha was right about. And also in the Buddha's teachings, just looking deeply into it, you see how he never oversteps into claiming something that you can't really directly experience. And of course, his direct experience goes deeper than mine because of his incredible understanding and, and powers of perception and, and um, you know, psychic ability and so on. But this is exactly the point about how we take your point about these situations. We find ourselves in the world, how we take sides and how do we, how do we really um, keep ourselves open to understanding where people are coming from. And still, I think there is a lot that we can identify as wholesome or unwholesome behavior based on the results. And a lot of this um, contemplation around what is truth and how do I know and how do I stay open and take into, other, into account what other people are saying comes down to this idea of how much can I look into and, and recognize what the results, what are the long-term results of this action? And it, in that, I really appreciate the word apamada, you know, like this heedfulness. We often translate it as heedfulness, but I think it actually carries this idea of being able to kind of see down the road or see through our life experience what comes out of these actions, which also came up in this conversation with this teenager. You know, it's like, they're, they're concerned about the long-term results of the way stu the students handled this. And that's really what I think we want to train ourselves to do. See wholesome and unwholesome by recognizing sort of what's the fallout. 
And we don't have to say, well, I know the absolute truth of whether this political um, person is or isn't. I'm sure there's a, a mix <laughs> everywhere around us, you know, like, but then these actions that we see being taken, we can have a sense of, at least to some degree, what the long-term results are. Does that make sense, Neil? Um, yeah, it does. But even as you're talking, I'm thinking, but who decides what's wholesome and unwholesome? I mean, I'm thinking now about um, things like um, this whole thing about uh, certain states have now banned entertainment of, you know, where people are wearing the clothing of the opposite gender, oh. um, you know, and um you know, they say that, you know, that sort of behavior is unwholesome, you know, whereas, you know, someone else would and I would say, you know, their judgment is unwholesome. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it it just it can get very sticky. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think then coming back to. um I come, you know, I always come back to what the Buddha talked about and how, you know, the the ways in which we do harm to others and to ourselves, that there is a karmic result. The Buddha never talked about these things based on some kind of uh, ideology or, um, you know, like uh, kind of moral moralizing. He talked about karma. You know, what's the karma of dressing like a different gender? It's it, it's meaningless. I mean, it's like, why why put pressure on people with something like that? You know, it's like, if you just look at, at the sort of like what matters and what doesn't in terms of, you know, who's harmed. I don't know, that's, that's where I, that's what I'm thinking about it yeah thank you neil steve yeah thank you this is uh this is a subject that we're we we kind of keep coming back to in our in our sangha and um <clears throat> recently we were talking about how so many of the uh the the interactions with mara um with the the, the buddhist devil are places where Mara is, is trying to promote uh, a fixed view or a, uh, an idea of a final truth to the Buddha, and the Buddha puts him off on that. <clears throat> but yeah, I was I, I had the same reaction uh, Neil had on. Um, it, it seemed like. It's like there's a, a following of a path of, and then then there's the final arrival at truth, and that seems seems kind of artificial. It, it seems like it's kind of out of place with the rest of of things going on. But I I appreciate your uh, your explanation, so you don't have to. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Holly? Uh, in, a, in a similar vein, um, things that are standing out to me about this kind of gray area or the, well, is like thinking about the karmic result of how I react when different parties have very different sides and viewpoints. I've had several uh, instances regarding friends and dogs and how they perceive it is appropriate to be with their dogs in groups and public places and on hikes and stuff. It's very different. There, some people have very different views. One, one, per, one group can view that it's just charming to sit down and have the dogs run all over you and eat your sandwiches and jump on your cars and run in your face. And it's just for one of the pack. It's great. Other view. <laughs> 
thinks that it sh- that the dog should have some civilization, respect space, uh, not beg the instance, slobber all over you. And uh, so this uh, created kind of quite a schism in a uh, group of mine. And and so what I, and this has happened with a couple of dog issues over decades. What I've done is just like not sides. I, ha- I align with one side or the other, but I don't vocalize my side a lot. And tempers will flare and emails and texts will go back and forth. And I just wait till the whole thing sort of simmers down a little bit through attrition and exhaustion. And then I go to the friends that I'm close to and I just, I contact them and say, can we get together? (laughs) And sometimes it's like, no. And then eventually it's like, okay. And then I just go and I just listen because I don't have an investment in their viewpoint. I'll do what I want and be with the folks I want to be with and the dog people I want to be with when they have their dogs. But it doesn't matter to me their viewpoint. I view it as where they came to in their viewpoint is their personality, their karmic heritage. Anyway, so my question, and I have a question in all this is, is the Buddha talking about super mundane, what we might call super mundane truth, and I'm talking about mundane? Yes, I think you're making a good point, and I'm not... So, so the Buddha, when he talks about the final arrival at truth, he is talking about the super mundane. He's talking about, you know, really understanding the way it all works. And of course, that puts everything that we're talking about in terms of like the world into some kind of perspective. And, it, and that perspective, I think, is there's dark and light mixed so much. There's so much of a mixture of things in whether the dog's running around eating your sandwich and jumping in your car and all that stuff, you know, there's, and who thinks what and how people feel about it. It's, it's, uh, and, and most of it doesn't really matter at all in the end, you know, like, you know, and, and it's like, it's, I think that when we distill all this down, so I want to apologize for the fact that if I were clearer, I could just tell you all this in three sentences and it would all be just crystal clear. <laughs> That's not where I'm at. <laughs> but to to really think about distilling this down into, yeah, there is the truth of the Dhamma. We're all practicing to and to understand that and to know it directly for ourselves. And that when we do, and we'll continue to see all of this mixture of dark and light, that we'll hold that percentage of uncertainty, not sure, like Ajahn Chah talked about so much, and have more kindness, compassion, and and grace around how we interact with each other. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Joyce? Uh, yes, everybody, thanks. Um, as I mentioned before, my, in introducing myself, I'm from Amherst, Mass. <laughs> and anyone who's familiar with Western Mass, I mean, I know Cynthia used to live nearby. Um, there's, you know, a saying about people in Amherst or that... In Amherst, um, the only, the H is silent. You know, it's M, it's spelled A-M-H-E-R-S-T, but once you've lived here for a while, it's pronounced Amherst and you skip the H. But actually living here, only the H is silent. Everybody else has an opinion and a voice. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they use their strong self-righteous opinion and voices to just not listen to each other. And where there's so many issues right now around uh, school committee firings and um, just stress and pain and over people not having, it seems to me it starts with the humility <laughs> to stop and listen and admit that maybe any particular person doesn't know the whole story and to practice um, right speech, uh, one tenet of which is 
you know, and what I, is what I'm saying true? Is what I'm saying timely? Is what I'm saying the right time to be saying it? Um, and rather than saying anything, listening. And it can, I think the whole town of Amherst should have been here at this meeting listening to your talk, Aya. <laughs> you know, because uh, they could, they could, they could, everybody could benefit from it. And for me, it's frustrating. It is rather than making the headlines of the paper and going over so many levels of authority to fire somebody, um, can't, can't the group just get together and listen to each other and learn? Um, so your story of the high school drama teacher and the play rang so true. It's a very relevant uh, and timely story for my town. Yeah, thank you, Joyce. Yeah, when when talking with this high school student, it was it was interesting because there was this place we got to where there was this hope that everybody involved would learn, not to go over the heads of the, you know, in case they get a job someday where they're, you know, like that could have dire consequences. Um, yeah. We the dire consequences again are like right back to what Sean was saying. You know, is this leading to peace? Yeah. Is this leading to understanding? Is this leading to more suffering? And I think, you know, that whole idea of is this stirring up greed? Is this stirring up hatred? Is this stirring up delusion in other people, in myself? And to to look at some of the reasons why we want to stir up greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, like some, at some level, we might like the feeling of strong anger or, or lust or whatever we, we, we are pumping up the sense of self, you know, we're, um, creating an identity around this, these issues and really, you know, not recognizing the beauty, the relief in peace and letting go and being kind and compassionate. Anyway, thank you. Thank you very much, Joyce. Neil. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so listening to you and listening to everybody else this morning, it's you know, sort of bringing me back to the reminder that I have to be brought back to over and over again, that um, in a culture and even in a world where the vast majority of people are not tuned in to the to the, the basic teachings of the Buddha. Um, you know, the only thing you can do is um, take care of yourself, take care of your own sense of um, skillful and unskillful. Um, does this lead to, to suffering or not suffering? And just behave among, in, in all of these situations as best you can. It, in with those guidelines, you know, that Sean talked about. Um, I think it's an insoluble uh, kind of a situation that we have in the world. I mean, you, you can just be your own center of, um, I don't know, equanimity, my favorite word, um, as you move through the world, because um, how, how how likely is it that the whole world is going to come to an understanding of these basic teachings, you know, that um, suffering, impermanence, and non-self, I mean, you know, it's just, it's probably not going to happen in our lifetimes. So you can just do it for yourself and and hope that it inspires as you move through the world. Yeah, thank you, Neil. I think this is part of the reality that we find in Sangsara, not just this world, but every every world. You know, it's like there is greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not going to go away. 
but there are these waves of, of inspiring and beautiful um, rising up out of that. And, and it's not just by knowing the Buddhist teachings either, because I know I grew up in a community where there was no one knew anything about Buddhism, but many people knew what was wholesome and unwholesome. And, you know, there's, there's a, you know, it's, it's, it's such a, an interesting mix. And, and I think you've got it, you know, the Buddha said to the, to the people when he was, when he was dying, he said, you have to be an island unto yourself. You have to have the Dhamma as your island. And this is still, this is true. You know, it's, it's, it's the, and, and it's not a hopeless mess. It's like we can really move our way through the path and grow and develop and be an incredible inspiration to others and support. Um, we really are not alone in it, in a sense, but we are responsible for this particular body and mind. This is what we can control. Yeah. Thank you. Cynthia. Thank you, Aya. Um, uh, I was just going to share something that it, it's kind of similar to what um, Neil was just saying, but but that this sense of trying to know the truth has been coming up for me lately, actually in my practice, you know, where I find myself getting confused because I hear teachers that I really respect and they don't exactly agree with each other or I'm comparing myself, my practice to what's going on with somebody else. And, and that I really like, I, I know that there are people farther along the path than I am. And it's really important for me to listen to them and to take that wisdom in as well as the, you know, direct teachings of the Buddha, but that ultimately I have to find and I think part of this whole thing about, you know, what's the truth and the ultimate truth is, I think part of it has to do with each of us are different. And, and there's, there's no, there's no one, like what might be the truth for me might not quite work for somebody else. Not that morality or ethics is completely relative, but so that, so that when it comes down to the end, like what you were just saying, being a lamp unto oneself, that I, that at the end, all I can do is be in my practice, try to stay open, take the guidance, and and I have to discover it for myself, what is wholesome and, and unwholesome, and that's been helpful. I, I also wanted to share a story. I'm sure some people have heard it, but talking about um, not being too attached to your views, there's this, this story of in Ajahn Chah's monastery many years ago, there was a woman who had ordained there and was there for a long time. And then she left and she somehow became a fundamentalist uh, uh, Christian, which is whatever, fine. But then she came back to the monastery and she was trying to convert all of the monks and the nuns there and really creating a lot of disruption. And the, the, finally, a group of them went to Ajahn Chah and they said, you've got to do something. This woman is driving her, driving us crazy and she's, you know, causing a lot of trouble. And he just looked at them and he said, well, she might be right. <laughs> and I think of that a lot when I'm attached to my views and opinions. Yeah, yeah, I, that's Ajahn Chah had a, had a wonderful talent. Um, from from all that I hear, of shaking people's up people up in their views. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cynthia, Ling. Thank you, Aya, and also our friends. When I hear you talk about this, I just in my mind I had this question: How can I apply this to my daily life? You know, like. Just very basic, if my son doesn't agree with what I just told him, what should I react? And, and I had a similar situation like what you talk about high school, about this play. Um, it was kind of my reaction. I didn't agree with that play, last year's play. I found, anyway, that was my view. Um, but when I was here, you talk and a friend's discussion, 
I want to clarify if my understanding is correct. Just help me um, in a daily life. Um, I don't know if this. Somehow I heard somebody said, must be one of the teachers said, Buddha said, all our perception is wrong, and only the Arahant's perception will be right. I mean, that's just in my mind. I was now I was thinking. So um, I've been having this idea. Um, I know Ajay Cham always talk like ask us to come ask the question, am I sure? Am I sure? Um, so if all our perception is is incorrect, which means whatever the view before we become uh, reach the enlightenment, everything the view we hold in our mind is is questionable. And then which means in the daily life, I, I'm just trying to hold hold some ankle to um, help my own um, conduct because at this moment I was thinking, you know, become uh, a kind and follow the precepts, have a good will, and that kind of things could maybe lead me to have right perception or find the real truth. Um, but anything come up, the people's opinion, my view should always have a second question, am I sure? I wonder if this is the right attitude <laughs> to cultivate looking at the real life? I think uh, it's important to not let this whole idea take us too much into confusion because it can, you know, if we think, oh, everything... I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it as every perception, all our perceptions are incorrect. It, I, that's, I that's not the way I would think of it at all. You know, it, I think the way to consider it is many of our perceptions have a lot of validity to them and we can understand right from wrong. We can understand um, a lot of, um, you know, we can have mundane right view and our right view becomes more and more super mundane as we progress it's true we won't have the complete picture until we're fully enlightened but we can have a very very good idea of what's going on not think oh i'm there there's nothing i can know and it's it's really the case i think that um we can know things. Like I said, it's not that, that we have to think that everything is uncertain in our understanding, but there is that peace, you know, that little, maybe a little bit, or maybe quite a bit of what we haven't, <coughs> haven't directly experienced yet. Like, you know, how people um, can, can be very confused or um, have strong ideas again, you know, to not believe that there's rebirth, for example. But on the on the path, as we go along, a person can come to the point where they actually know they're very clear that that is how it works. They know that because they've seen it in some way in their practice, and they they can be. Um, clear that that's the way it works. And then, you know, the Buddha also is like, yes, this is the way it works, you know, <laughs> that can help us um, feel confident in our understanding too. And, but there, but there is going to be in some way until we're fully enlightened. And how do you know that? You know, there's no greed, hatred, or delusion left. So the question, the problem with our, partial um, knowing is, is that there's still maybe greed, hatred, or delusion influencing our perception. But it isn't like that's always what's there. Some things we can know. We can know that killing intentionally and the feelings behind that lead to suffering. We can know that. I think it's useful sometimes to reflect on what do I really know? And there are things we can know. 
that it's better to have to talk with someone with a heart of loving kindness than it is with inner hatred. We know that, that that inner hatred doesn't lead to anything good. We know that. And we can verify it through our experience and we can also rely on the Buddha's you know, clear statement about that. So I think there's a lot that we can know and a lot of times our perception is clear. It's not that everything we perceive is, is incorrect. But we just need to remember that well, I don't really have quite the whole story yet, especially when I want to pass judgment on someone else. Okay. So like with your son, for example, with the people who are close to us, um, we may see that what they're doing or saying really does go against common sense and clarity about what leads to harm in the long run. But to hear also what is behind it for them. Why do they want to go in that direction? Why are they, why are they believing this? Can we help them see the harm that is possible, possible result of their actions in a way coming from just wanting to be their support. Thank you, Aya. Yeah, I hope that helps. <laughs> it's more clear now. <laughs> Thank you. I think it would be nice to meditate for a little bit. So just find a comfortable position. See if taking a couple of deeper breaths helps to bring the mind to more stillness, kind of calming down. Tuning into our breath. Letting whatever feeling there is wash out of the body, out of the mind. Settling on the breath. Feeling it enter the body. Feeling it leave again. like waves, bringing peace and restoration to the body and to the mind. Thank you. 
inviting a sense of kindness, an openness, not holding on tightly, but relax and feel When the Buddha said, when we start with moral precepts, sila, we don't kill, steal, engage in sexual misconduct or lie, not harsh in our speech or divisive. frivolous and so on when we when we really rest in the principles of moral conduct and we live them then it's natural that we don't have any regret and when we don't have regret we feel joy And this is a path of knowing right from wrong. And there's peace that arises from it. And the whole path unfolds from there. The Buddha said that the noble disciple is peaceful, calm, wise, and skillful. This is what we develop. Not holding to fixed views, but pure-hearted.
to thank you all for kindly grappling with this topic. <laughs> and um, I hope that uh, it does make sense that the Dhamma isn't a view, <laughs> so we rely on the Dhamma. <laughs> and um, we can... Um, hopefully move forward in our practice in a way that we, we come to more and more solidity, understanding and wisdom to help us navigate this crazy world. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.